0: Thanks, Suzanne. Thank you. Thank you. That was wonderful. Thank you. Um, did you mention prayer meeting tonight? Uh, we should mention that uh, tonight's uh, prayer meeting at 7 o'clock will be at Suzanne and Vernon's house. So if you're so inclined to uh, attend prayer meeting tonight, be out at Vernon's uh, house at 7 o'clock and we'll have uh, our customary end of the month um, prayer meeting there tonight. Uh, and there's hordes of people here. I can tell you're over the China virus. There's so many people here this morning. Um, I don't know if you got a chance to watch on television or uh, the internet the two distinctly Christian events that were taking place in uh, Washington D. Yes, uh, yesterday. One was, of course, Franklin Graham's uh, prayer march, which, which went very, very well. And there was another distinctly Christian event called The Return or something of that nature that that I'm not quite familiar with, as familiar with. They were two uh, simultaneous events. I don't think they were connected, but both were very well done and I believe very well attended. From what I could see, it looked like tens of thousands of folks were there in the nation's capital yesterday. So, um, pray that good and great things will result from that. It's a start. We've got a long way to go. We've got a lot to do. But it's a start. And who knows, one day we may find out that yesterday helped to save this nation. In fact, if this nation survives, I believe days like yesterday will have proven to have been the salvation of this country. And you look great. And thank you for, for, for being here. Pray, Continue to pray for Claudia and her Her treatments, but she's looking awful good today. (laughs) And of course, Regine again this week. And uh, I have some good news from some friends of mine out in Virginia. They had some uh, prayer requests, and uh, things are looking up for them. God is good, and He does answer prayer. So, um, yes, do please uh, join us tonight. Who knows what can come of very humble meetings amongst believers who pray to the Father with His divine plan. Right here and right here let's check in with some believers in another part of the world as has been our fashion for some months now by way of the global prayer guide courtesy of voice of the martyrs some folks who do desperately need our prayers I bring to your attention believers in the Lord Jesus who are in Malaysia Malaysia is a restricted country Malaysia has three major ethnicities, Malays, 60%, Chinese 30% and native tribes. The Malays are the most powerful group in the country and being Muslim is an important part of their identity. Most Christians are from the tribal and Chinese people groups and most churches experience relative freedom as long as they do not try to evangelize the Malays. Malaysia is a majority Sunni Muslim country but it also has a significant Buddhist population as well. The government severely punishes converts. While Christianity is not technically illegal, Christians are marginalized by the ruling Muslim ethnic group and have difficulty acquiring building permits for new churches. Many churches work in the languages of Mandarin, Tamil, and English, but not in the Malay language. While there are some large churches in Malaysia, most are reluctant to evangelize the Malay people for fear of government retaliation or community backlash. Malay churches meet openly. It is illegal for Malays to convert to Christianity. Christian converts who are caught are confined to so-called re-education camps. They use brainwashing techniques, torture, and propaganda to force them to return to Islam. Most Malay background Christians keep their ethnicity a secret from their church. Many indigenous people have come to Christ in Eastern Malaysia which is separated from peninsular Malaysia and shares a border with Indonesia. It is illegal for Malay people to have a Bible. And Malay language Bibles are largely unavailable outside Christian majority areas. Voice of the Martyrs supports frontline workers and Malay Christian believers. So please pray for these folks. They are in a very difficult situation there in Malaysia. Please remember them in your prayers tonight, today following week and, and always. And if you haven't uh, yet received one of these for yourself, contact Voice of the Martyrs and they will send you one. They would be delighted to send you one. So you can pray for these folks and have them in your mind and your consciousness all the time, all the day. Shame on you for not getting one of these. You need to get one of these. And pray over it, pray with it every day. Now, with that, let's pray for these folks. Sovereign or God or Heavenly Father, Ruler of heaven and earth, one true and only living God, you who are absolute and ultimate reality, you who have the divine plan, have spoken it into being, and you keep it, maintain it, and sustain it, and keep it humming right along now and hereafter until the divine Son returns and wraps it all up. And all things in this universe, according to Paul, are united at him and summed up in him his meaning, his purpose, his plan. Thank you for answering our prayers concerning Claudia and for the health of Miss Jean, and we trust that you will care for both of these women and their procedures this week and forwards. Give wisdom and knowledge to the doctors and nurses and technicians. May they be in fine form to help our family members as they need and as you see fit. And may you continue to be glorified in their life and in the lives of their family members. Show them who you are and what you are by your magnificent work in them and in their present situation and circumstance. I pray for everyone here who has come to worship you and to worship you by hearing you speak to them out of your word. I pray that you will help them in whatever situations and circumstances that they may be facing, known and unknown. And I pray, Father God, for all of those who are watching over s- several or more different states. Reveal yourself to them in a very special way that is unique to them in building your relationship with them. Speak to them the way that you know best. And help us to be dutiful and mindful of them and available to everyone who seeks our help and needs our help. I pray in particular, of course, for our brothers and sisters in Jesus who are in Malaysia. Please help them in their distressing circumstance. We pray that you will grant them more freedom, grant them freedom from their persecutors. We pray for the gospel of Christ to spread and grow throughout that country and to bring living souls to true life in Christ Jesus and to bring them out of spiritual death and darkness into spiritual light and life. Protect them, keep them safe, reveal your plan more and more to them and the details of that plan in their particular life, in their little neck of the woods, in their corner of the world. And help us by voice of the martyrs in any way that we can to be dutiful to take care of them in any way that we can. Help us to not rest, Father God, until we are doing our duty by our family members in Jesus around the world and doing our duty as Christians and as, as Americans here at home and our country threatened with darkness. And I pray you will bless the efforts of thousands of our brothers and sisters in Jesus who met in our nation's capital to pray for this country's repentance and to pray for your mercy and your grace upon a nation that now deserves your judgment. We pray for your mercy and we pray you will give us the strength and the power of your spirit to do whatever needs to be done as Christian believers first and our loyalty to the kingdom of Jesus and as an American Citizens second. People who love freedom and liberty. Who want it for others. And who want the light of freedom and liberty to blaze across this world. And to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout this world. To bring many predestined from before the foundation of the world from spiritual death to spiritual life. Forgive us of our sins, O sovereign God. We place our sins in the cross of Jesus. Have mercy on us, O living God. Pick us up and clean us up and send us on our way, the right way. And with the grand plan that Paul gives us in the beginning of this letter, help us to navigate our lives wisely and well in this pilgrimage on our way to the completion of the divine plan, our inheritance, our eternal home. So may the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God, our one and only rock, our one and only Redeemer. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Now let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We'll complete Paul's benediction, opening his letter to the believers in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 to 14. If you remember last week, we unpacked the truth of half of verse 9, but let's go ahead and read all of verse 9 again to get, as I like to say, a bit of a running start or a running leap into the text that we're going to unpack today. Today we will study verses 9 to 14 and we will finish Paul's benediction in the opening of the letter. Beginning in verse 9, "...he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, The summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, and things in the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, or his own will. To the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, or the promised Holy Spirit, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. These are the inspired words of the Lord. Thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. Those of you who have your English Standard Version study Bible, have it cracked open on your lap and at the ready, because I'm going to be referring to it a number of times uh, this morning. I know a lot of you folks here today, a lot of folks watching, have the ESV study Bible. I think it's one of the grandest and best study Bibles available today. I like, uh, For all of you who have it, I like to make use of it from time to time on Sunday morning or Tuesday night. Uh, one of the commentaries that I'm studying, a fantastic one in particular, is written by a theologian named S.M. Bow. And uh, Dr. S. M. Bao, in- interestingly enough, is the theologian who provides the textual study notes to the book of Ephesians in the ESV Study Bible. And he has a lot of wonderful remarks to make in his textual notes in Ephesians in the ESV Bible. So I'll be referring to those today from, from time to time. So continuing on and finishing today... Paul's very deep theological truth that he preaches and teaches and proclaims in his benediction, his praise of God, his praise to God, Father, Son, and Spirit for what he has done by way of this divine plan and making us a part of his divine plan. Verses 3 to 14. All one sentence in the Greek. That's why it's been somewhat difficult for me to break this down on Sunday mornings. And it's not going to get any easier for me because... um, Well, the next uh, chunk of text that we're going to be studying, uh, verses 15 to 23, that's all one long run-on sentence in the Greek as well. So bear with me, have patience with me as I try to break this down into sections for us to unpack the truth of it on Sunday mornings. So let me read again verse 9, and we'll jump into verse 10 that we'll begin to unpack the truth of it. First of all, let me take this opportunity since I have it read you the translation of the English Standard Version as well. I'll begin in verse 8. According to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of the times to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Or as the New American Standard Bible, I like to use the New American Standard Bible because it's an excellent word-for-word equivalent translation. "...which He may know to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him." Now what does that mean? It's simply this phrase, "...which He purposed in Him." This is speaking of God the Father. God the Father's purpose in Christ God the Son." God the Father's divine purpose and plan in and through Christ. And the word purposed is in the Greek. It's a very strong word. It means to set forth with resolve, with determination, with great purpose. To plan something with resolve and determination beforehand. To make a strong resolve or determination. The plan of redemption granting us forgiveness of our sins Was planned and determined with very strong resolve by the members of the Trinity, as Paul told us last week, before he even spoke the universe into being. And salvation and redemption will come to fallen human creatures according to the divine plan at the exact perfect time in history by way of God the Son, Christ Jesus our Lord. So, this redemption, this forgiveness offered to us was purposed beforehand by divine plan in and by way of Christ. Now, verse 10. This is a pretty formidable mouthful of a verse. Well, actually, the remainder of this passage is, "...with a view to an administration," or view to a plan, the administering of a plan suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the, su- the end of this plan is the summing up of all things in Christ." Things in the heavens and things upon the earth. So, what in the world is this all about? That's quite a mouthful. What is Paul saying here? First of all, let's unpack this phrase as a plan or with a view to an administration or the administration of a plan. The word, the operative word there in that sentence is oeconomia, oconomos, from the Greek word oikos, of made a crack on this before. You, have you seen that yogurt, oikos? And if you've wondered what in the world that means, it's it, oikos, o-i-k-o-s is house. In Greek, it's house yogurt. Whatever that is, I don't know. Hopefully it's good. But Paul uses an interesting expression here. God administering his plan is an oikonomia, an oikonomos. And the, mostly how that word is used in the Greco-Roman world referred to a house manager the steward or the manager of a household, the manager or the administrator of a large estate. Sometimes it was used for the administration of a province, or the administration or management of a community, or a county, a province as we would say. Isn't that interesting? Paul is giving us the imagery of God as an administrator, as an manager of an estate. What's his estate? The universe. Creation And what is he planning? What is he managing? What is he administering? This divine plan devised in the mind and heart of God from before he spoke his estate, his universe, his creation into being. He's simply managing the divine plan that he decreed, that he set in motion as a plan for the fullness of times or a plan working itself out suitable to the fullness of the times. Now, again, what in the world does that mean? Fullness of times here is a very rare phrase. I believe, if memory serves me correct, it, I don't even know if it's found in Greco-Roman literature outside of the Bible. I have to do a little bit more homework with that. But pleromotonchiron uh, is the phrase that Paul uses there, fullness of times. It's used, I believe, only two times in the New Testament, here and in the book of Galatians. What does it mean? Fullness of the times. You folks with your ESV study Bible, I refer to you to Dr. Bow's note. Fullness of times. You could translate this as when the time was ripe. When the time was right, as we say, for the fulfillment of God's plan. That's what pleromaton pl- pl- Pleromatoncaron means. When the time was ripe. When the time was right. Or as we would say, at the exact perfect time according to plan. These things in redemptive history take place and took place and will take place. Plêroma means to be filled up. Uh, If I was, um, many contexts this word means if I was taking a jar of water and I filled up the jar of water and I fill it all the way up to the brim and I keep filling it and it keeps spilling over it, that's plêroma. Plêroma can also be used to mean something is completed perfectly. Or in this context, the exact perfect time that something is supposed to take place according to plan. That's what the fullness of times means. Perfect time. The perfect event at the perfect time in the perfect era all according to divine plan. You see what he's saying? Christ arrived in his incarnation to perform his perfect work at the exact perfect time in history according to the divine plan and that divine plan is humming right along right now even as I speak sustained and maintained by Father Son and Spirit and when the divine Son returns to wrap up the divine plan and sum up all things in him it will take place at the exact perfect time at the summation of history as we know it according to divine plan That's what Paul is saying. He's saying that the work of God the Son according to plan is the locus, is the focus, is the most critical time of history. The word Paul uses there for time is Chiron. There are two words in Koine Greek for time. One is chronos from which we get chronology, meaning according to chronology it is about five or six minutes after 11 o'clock. That's chronos time. Paul is referring to Chiron time. Chiron time means a very special time, an epoch-defining time, a history-making time, a special time or event or era in history. That's what Chiron time is. That's the time that Paul is speaking of here. The Lord Jesus Christ came to change history because He is the Lord of history. He is the author of the plan of history, and he entered his own plan in person to ratchet up that plan in his creation, in his world. You see what Paul is saying? The life of Jesus of Nazareth was, as of now, up to this point, the most critical era in the history of the world. And the results of His work will one day unite, reconcile, and submit all things to the divine San, Son and under the divine Son, according to divine plan. Fullness of time. Again, very rare expression. It's counterpart in the New Testament's Galatians. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Let me read it to you. But when the fullness of time had come, plerometon kairon, when the exact perfect time in history had come, At the perfect time according to divine plan, Paul teaches, God sent His Son, the Incarnation, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights as sons. In other words, that we might become adopted children of God by way of the new birth won for us by the work of God the Son. The exact perfect time in history according to the divine plan. Paul is saying that the incarnation of Jesus of Nazareth, God the Son, His work in His first advent took place at the exact perfect time in history according to God's plan. His life, His work was the critical time, the critical era of history. Christ is at the heart, He is at the core, He is at the purpose of history. Let me use an expression, I don't mean to be cute by using this expression, but Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, He is the real mover and shaker of history. You've got to view world history through the lens of the divine plan. Every event in the history of this world recorded that has taken place that is taking place now. You must look at it through the view, the the lens of the divine plan as given to us in sacred scripture. Jesus Christ, God the Son, His plan and His role in that plan is the divining critical era and meaning and purpose of history. And His presence in His people, His church, His bride, His body, at this time in history, This is where the real moving and shaking of history is all about. It's not even the United States, it's not even China, it's not even Russia, it's not even all the others. It's really all about the Kingdom of Jesus Christ spreading and growing in this world, preparing for His return. That's what history is all about. His plan is the meaning and purpose of history. Christ's work is the central act in all of history, which leads us to this remark of Paul's. The summing up of all things in Christ. Or you could translate it as the uniting of all things in Christ. Things in heaven, things upon the earth. So it's all about Christ. It's all to Christ. It's all for Christ. All creation will be under the rule of God, God the Son in particular. This is the meaning and purpose of the universe. The rule and reign of the Divine Son is where all of this is headed and what all of this is about. And it's under His sovereign control and His rule. Even those who hate Him and reject Him are under ultimately His control as part of the plan. And as Paul says at the end of the great Christ hymn in Philippians 2, they will bow the knee. And they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, curios, absolute divine Lord and Master, to the glory of God the Father. By divine plan, by uh, by divine decree. Forgive me, I'm trying to get ahead of myself. I'm getting a little excited over my subject matter. Folks, do you realize what this man is giving us here 2,000 years later? This man is answering all of the most foundational and fundamental questions that human beings ask. What am I here for? What is this all about? Where is this all headed? He is telling you. He is giving you the divine plan in the big picture for you to navigate your life wisely and well, this side of eternity, your place and your part in the divine plan. It's magnificent. This is your hope. This is your assurance. This is your comfort. This is your peace. He gives you the big plan. No, He doesn't give you all the details. If He did, we'd mess it up. We're to walk by faith and not by sight. But He gives you the big picture, the big plan. What is there not to like about that? You've got all of the answers that human beings really fundamentally, foundationally need. Now take these answers Apply these answers to your life and get out there and give these answers to people who are hopelessly wandering around in total darkness, who don't have a clue. This is it. This is what it's all about. One day, all of creation will be put under the perfect harmonious rule and reign of God the Son. All things in creation have their purpose in Him. Paul is speaking of the meaning and the climax of history as we human beings know it. When he says summing up or uniting up, anikiphalomai is the odd compound word, odd sounding to us, that he uses in Greek, anikiphalomai, summing up or unite, another strong word. It means to gather all of many pieces and parts and components together as one. To unite many different peoples or components or parts or pieces to complete as one to reconcile many things together as one in meaning and purpose. All for and under the eternal kingdom, under the eternal reign of the Son, God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. All things in heaven, that means the spiritual realm, the spirit world. And all things on the earth, that means this world in which we live, the material, physical, created order. This expression, all things in heaven, all things in earth, Paul is a good, orthodox, pious Jew. That's an old Jewish expression. You'll find it, or an equivalent to it, in the Old Testament. To a Jewish person, all things in heaven and all things in earth is a shorthand expression meaning everything in this universe that God created. Everything. All it contains. It's heading to be placed under the reign and rule of God. God the Son. This is the meaning, this is the purpose, this is the goal, this is the direction of all. Which brings me to say this History has a plan. History is a plan. One of the tragic poisons of postmodernism, a terrible spiritual and philosophical poison that's contaminating Western civilization, the United States, is that everything has no meaning or purpose. Or that we human beings are capable of creating our own reality out of thin air or our own meaning. That is a pernicious lie. And it is very destructive. And Paul is teaching here that history is a plan, history is a story, history is linear, history is sequential A, B, C, D, A to Z, Alpha to Omega. History is a linear, sequential story with a meaning and a purpose. It is a plan, right? It is not meaningless. It has meaning and it has purpose. History is intentional. It is God's will and God's intentions, and He authored it, and He is in control of it. History, the big picture, is not endlessly cyclical. Now, this would come as a big shocker to the Ephesians. Because the pagans in antiquity, and some, frankly, if I may be blunt, pagan religions and pagan cultures to this day, they believe that history is cyclical. Hopelessly cyclical. Just spinning round and round and round and round like a gerbil wheel. Just spinning and going absolutely nowhere. That is a total lie. That's not true. That's not what Paul teaches. That's not the truth that God gives us. That's not what the divine plan is, according to sacred scripture. Now, sometimes history does circle back around to repeat itself. That's true. In fact uh, take it from somebody who studied American history all of their life, we're getting ready to tragically repeat history now. In fact we are. And we're headed for worse. If we don't wake up and get tough with great meaning and great purpose, you can count on it. But history is not hopelessly cyclical like a gerbil will. It's a sequential story. It's part of a plan. Everything has its place, and everything is taking place at the perfect time, just as it was originally planned. It's authored by Christ, by God the Son. And the author is at the very heart and center of the story. So again, Paul's answering the most important questions that human beings ask about the meaning of life, the purpose of everything. Well, what's all this for? Where in the world is all of this headed? It's all answered here. It's all about and headed for what the Apostle John describes in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. The new heaven and the new earth, which Isaiah prophesied by as well, by the way. And in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 you see the completion of the divine plan. It's all wrapped up. It's all summed up in Christ the Son. And a new age then begins, an eternal age, which never ends. According to the plan. And as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, the end of the great Christ hymn, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the summation of all things in Christ, the uniting of all things in Christ. Verse 11, in Him, actually the very end of verse 10 belongs to verse 11, in Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, He who works all things after the counsel of His own will. So in Him also we have obtained an inheritance. I like the sound of that. In Jesus Christ, by way of our relationship to Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. We Christian believers, what is that inheritance? Revelation chapter 21 and 22. The eternal kingdom of God our Father, who has adopted us as His spiritual children by way of Christ and given us an inheritance. This inheritance is the privilege of living in and being a part of his eternal kingdom described so beautifully and wonderfully in those last two chapters of the New Testament. And Paul reminds us, this is all according to plan. Don't forget, having been predestined according to his purpose. Let me refer you folks to the ESV study Bible note on verse 11, predestined. I love how he sums this up. He does it wonderfully. Predestined, making those who believe in Him heirs with Christ was not an ad hoc event. God had planned it from all of eternity. By definition, God is sovereign, directing all things freely according to His royal counsel. This is in sharp contrast with the pagan gods of the time, who were understood to be often fickle or bound by an inscrutable and arbitrary fate. God's predestination gives His people tremendous comfort, for they know that all who come to Christ do so through God's enabling grace and appointment. When Paul writes, God is the one who works all things according to the counsel of His own will. This is best understood to mean that every single event that occurs is in some sense predestined by God. At the same time, Paul emphasizes the importance of human responsibility as is evident in all of the moral commands that come later in this letter to the Ephesians and in all of Paul's letters, for that matter. As Paul demonstrated in all of his remarkable evidence in spreading the gospel, he firmly believed that doing personal evangelism and making conscious choices to obey God are also absolutely essential in fulfilling God's plan. God uses human means to fulfill what He has ordained. With regard to tragedies and evil, Paul and the other biblical writers never blame God for these things. Rather, they see the doctrine of God's sovereignty as a means of comfort and assurance. Read Romans chapter 8. Confident that all evil will be judged and it will not triumph, and that God's good plans for His people will be fulfilled. How God's sovereignty and human responsibility work together in the world is a mystery. Allow me to add a deep and profound mystery that no one can fully understand. Thank you, Dr. Bow. Wonderfully put. That's what Paul and the other New Testament writers teach us. Predestined. Proorizo. Predetermined. Purpose, protethos, resolve, plan, intention. And God works all of this out. You might be interested. Paul uses an interesting word for God works all these things out. It's energeo. That's right. That's the word by which we come by the English word energy. God with great energy and strength and power works out his purpose and his plan according to the counsel of his own will. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in eternity past, took advice and counsel one amongst the other, the three persons of the one being of God, and devised this divine plan. God according to His own counsel. Decision, decree, resolve. Here's our hope. Here's our comfort. Here's our assurance. If you truly are a recipient of the new birth, you are part of God's divine plan and Purpose, His perfect will, a plan worked out by His power and His strength and His energy, a plan that will not fail and that can not fail. Verse twelve: To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. What does that mean? To the end. It mean to the end. To this goal, for this purpose. To this goal, to this purpose, we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. Now, there's a bit of a debate how this should be translated. Uh, It's a bit difficult to translate in Greek, and I don't want to get too tedious and technical on you, but the debate here concerns a preposition in this sentence in the original Greek that's used to intensify the force of the verb. And I won't get any more tedious than that. Most of the time this is translated as that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. If that is the correct translation, what Paul is saying is this that we who were the very first Christians to believe, we Jewish Christians, we, the first wave of believers who came about in this world, should be to the praise of His glory. And notice in 13, he doesn't leave the Gentiles out either, because Jews and Gentiles being brought together as one people in Christ is a big theme in this letter. In verse 13 he says, In Him you also, you Ephesians out there in Ephesus in Asia Minor, you Gentiles, you're part of this too. Don't forget, you're for the praise of His glory as well. Now some Bible scholars, New Testament scholars, argue that that perhaps we should translate it this way, that we who place our hope firmly in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. Either way, it's correct. The first Christians were for the praise of His glory. And the Gentiles who follow a little later are also for the praise of His glory. All believers in the first century, in the first wave, all believers through history, believers now, believers who will come to Christ in the future, are all to be made one in Christ. And they are all to be brought together to the praise of His glory. Or as that wonderful old Westminster Catechism says, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is the meaning, this is the goal, this is the purpose of the kingdom. In verse, verse 13 now, in Him you also, that is you Gentiles, you folks out there in Ephesus, You folks who are believing now, who have believed later, I'm not leaving you out. You're part of this too. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him, in Christ, with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now that's mammoth as well. Let's pick that apart. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. Notice he says, in Him, in Christ. Never forget that. All of these things Paul is speaking about, all of these blessings that he's teaching, they are offered in Christ and in Christ alone. One's relationship to Christ, one's relationship with Christ is everything. And notice Paul is getting a little more personal here. He says, in Him you also... So now what is he doing? He's addressing you, the reader and listener of the letter directly. After listening, hearing to the one and only true message of truth, the truth of he who is truth, the truth of he who is the source of all truth, factual truth, the message of God's factual reality, which in this case is what? The gospel of your salvation, the evangelion, the good news of the person and work of Jesus. The good news of the person and work of Christ, which is your salvation. That is to say, which brought you to salvation in Christ after hearing and listening. You, as a result, believed. You came to saving faith. You came to the new birth in Christ. You believed. You became, as John would say, born of God. And when that took place, this happened. You were sealed in Him with the promised Holy Spirit of God. The third person of the Trinity Himself was poured upon you. The Spirit of God being poured into the soul of man, as the old theologians would say. And He Himself becomes a seal on you, or a seal over you. Dr. Bauer writes in his commentary, "...Faith is required for the sealing of the Spirit, but the sealing and faith may occur simultaneously." Since we know that it is the Holy Spirit, he is the one who works faith in the believer as a divine gift from God. Paul teaches this in Philippians 1.29. So saving faith, belief in Christ for salvation, is the proper right response to the gospel that leads to the new birth, that leads to the sealing with the Holy Spirit. The new birth is John and the Lord Jesus himself would say. It includes being sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. Now notice this, folks. Notice something. This is important. Paul writes, sealed with the Holy Spirit, not sealed by the Holy Spirit. You're not sealed by the Holy Spirit. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means this. The Holy Spirit of God is the seal. The Spirit of God, He Himself is the seal. The Spirit of God is Himself the seal, the mark of ownership, that a believer truly belongs to God by way of the new birth. When Christians are born again, He is saying, the Holy Spirit of God enters the soul, giving life, applying the work of Christ to the soul of that person. When saving place, Faith takes place, and then the Spirit of God indwells the believer, enlivening the soul, and the Spirit's presence there acts as a seal, sealing the believer for God. Now isn't that interesting? He says in your ESV study Bible, sealed can mean either that the Holy Spirit protects and preserves Christians until they receive their inheritance, that is true, or that He certifies the authenticity of their acceptance by God as being genuine, bearing God's royal seal, as we would say. The first interpretation may seem best here, but both ideas are biblically true. I believe he's saying both. What does he mean by promised Holy Spirit? He's jogging your memory, hoping that you've explored the Old Testament Scriptures. This is all promised, he's saying. This was prophesied long ago. Examine your Old Testament Scriptures. God pouring out His Holy Spirit is a promise from centuries ago. This was prophesied centuries back. You find it in Ezekiel 36 and 37. You find it in Joel 2 and some other passages implied. It's a prophecy. It was promised for a long, long, long time that all who would believe in the Christ after His first advent, this was all prophesied. And the Holy Spirit indwells and seals by His indwelling presence all Christian believers who truly hear and believe and so are born of God. Now, let's focus on this seal. Few more words about the Holy Spirit Himself is a seal. His presence in your soul, giving you life, is a seal. His presence is a seal. Now, what's up with that? Let's pick that apart a little more. Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The word He uses for seal is "sfragizo." It's a very rich word. "Sfragizo" seal means a number of things, and I think they all apply. To what Paul is saying here. A sfragizo seal means a mark of ownership. Mark of ownership. The presence of the Holy Spirit in your soul giving you eternal life is a mark of ownership. That you belong to God, to His plan, to His purpose. A sfragizo seal also was a symbol of a closed bargain or transaction. What is that transaction? Your salvation. Declared by God the Father, performed by God the Son, and applied by God the Spirit. That's how the Holy Spirit is a seal as well. A Sfragizo seal was also a seal that was used to, to protect and to defend. That is most certainly true. The presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is most certainly there to protect and defend the believer by his presence. A Sfragidzo seal was a seal that was a sign of authentication. To authenticate someone or somebody, that is most certainly true as well. The presence of the Holy Spirit in the believer, the indwelling Spirit, does authenticate the Christian believer, that the Christian believer authentically possesses the new birth and truly and authentically belongs to God, to Christ. That is how He is a seal on you, in you and over you, to seal you, to protect you, to defend you, until you arrive in your eternal home, and your inheritance, at the end of the divine plan, to get you there safe, and wisely and well. Verse 14, the conclusion of today's passage and the conclusion of his benediction. The promised Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge. Now, you could also translate this as, and some other English uh, translations translate this as, who is given as a pledge, who is given as a guarantee, who is given as, yes, a down payment. More on that in a moment. Of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. All to the praise of His glory. And with that, He concludes the benediction. So what in the world is this all about? In your study Bible, Dr. Bauer writes, God pours out His Holy Spirit on all of His children to guarantee, to provide a down payment on them, on their share in His eternal kingdom, because He applies to them all of God's powerful working in redemption until we require the possession of it, actually I believe this is better translated as God's taking up possession. This phrase can also be rendered until God redeems his possession. In the wrapping up of the divine plan at the end of history. Let me tell you what he's saying here. It's this big, let me try to make it this big. It's enormous. And once again, this is your assurance, this is your promise. This is your confidence. This is your hope that in the end, it is going to end well for you. The divine plan. Never forget the majesty of the big forest for all of those trees that we smash our noses up against on a daily basis that we confront. He's given you the big picture. It's going to be well. The Holy Spirit has been given to you, has been placed on you and in you as a pledge of your inheritance. Your inheritance is life in the eternal kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance. The word pledge is ahrabon. And it's interesting because (laughs) Paul's using a commercial term. He's using business commerce language from Koine Greek in the first century A.D. It's a commercial term. It's commercial language. And you can translate Ahraban as a pledge, as in a security, a down payment. Some form of security down payment given in advance until full possession is taken up or claimed. So are you putting it together? This is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit himself is a security in advance. His presence in your life, His presence in your soul, giving you the new life, is a down payment. A down payment, a security in advance on our inheritance. A down payment security on our life in the eternal kingdom of God. A down payment or security until full possession of the believer by God is taken up and claimed in the eternal kingdom. That's what he's saying. The Holy Spirit seals us, authenticates us, protects us, defends us. He is a security, a down payment for us until you and I, all of us together, are at the end of the divine plan, taken up, possessed, claimed by God in his eternal kingdom. Clint Arnold writes in his commentary, God so values his predestined redeemed people that he put down a deposit the spirit himself the third person of the trinity as a security and this transaction will be completed in the future the new heaven and new earth all believers have already in the here and now begun to experience their inheritance as a result of the presence of the holy spirit of god in their lives what does he mean by the the redemption of god's own possession Till God takes up the full redemption of His possession. In other words, till God at the end of the divine plan takes up once and for all His claim on what He owns. His possession. God redeems His possession. Again, the Holy Spirit acts as a seal until God redeems, fully claims, takes up His possession. Well, what is that? What does Paul mean by God's own possession? He means you. He means you. If you truly are a recipient of the new birth, with the Holy Spirit of the living God indwelling you, giving you eternal life, you are His possession that He's speaking about. All of us, Christian believers are. Christian believers, His people, His bride, His body, His church, His commonwealth. Those who are predestined to inherit His kingdom, they are God's own possession. God's chosen, adopted, predestined, children are who and what Paul means by God's own possession. Paul is saying that believers have received the Spirit by way of the new birth, won by Christ. The life-giving, empowering presence of the Spirit seals and abides in believers until the final day of consummation until all of history is all wrapped up. And a new age then begins when all things are summed up and all things are united, when all things are sewed up and wrapped up in Christ. And all of this is what? To the praise of His glory, that the sovereign God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for an eternal age will be praised and glorified by His people in His restored universe, throughout all of eternity. That's the end goal. That's the plan. That's the meaning. That's the purpose. That God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit may be glorified in you, His people, in His plan and His creation forever. His people, His possession, who then, I believe, truly will bear His image at last may glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. To the praise of His glory is also an expression to praise God for His perfect divine plan and to praise God for revealing to us this divine plan. This divine plan taught in this benediction and throughout the remainder of this letter. As Paul praises God for these deep ultimate truths, he is saying, you should too. I praise God. To All of this is to take place to the praise of His glory. All we exist for the praise of His glory. Praise the glorious God, he sang, who chose and predestined you, His people, from before the foundation of the world, and who made us part of a divine plan, a grand plan, now fully revealed in Jesus Christ the Redeemer, and who by His work the Holy Spirit seals His people for life in the eternal kingdom, the consummation and completion of this divine plan. And so thus ends Paul's beautiful opening benediction to this letter. One of the greatest statements of inspired divine truth that has ever been written and given to human beings. Let me say this again. What we have studied just last week and this week this is the most important thing that you will ever hear in your life and that any human being will ever hear in their life. You have been given the meaning and purpose of this universe and everything and everybody in it. In this beautiful benediction. Now as we say, get out there and spread it and live it. The remainder of this letter will be Paul's inspired deep teaching on all of these truths that he taught us in the opening benediction. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for creating us by divine plan. Thank you for saving us by divine plan. Thank you for making us and saving us to be a part of your divine plan to know you by encounter and by experience and by genuine relationship to know you, the one true living God, you who are absolute and ultimate reality and to glorify you and to enjoy you, who and what you are for forever in a perfect world, perfectly restored, to enjoy everything and everybody that will be in it For forever, in absolute holiness and perfection. For these things we must praise you, O glorious God, Father, Son, and Spirit. In Jesus' holy name we praise you and we thank you. Amen. Amen. To dismiss, let's stand and sing. You may refer to